Well, Drew Scheip uh, did it again. Um, Rachel Hosan asked her several weeks ago to said we're going to be studying First Corinthians through the summer, and uh, would you kind of put together an illustration that'll help us uh, highlight this? And this is what you see. Now I haven't checked this out with. Drew, so I, I'm sort of offering my interpretation of what she did. But I think it's fabulous. Growing pains, where am I? Here we are. Okay. Growing pains is really the title that we gave to this series, and um, that's what First Corinthians is all about. And in fact, when you get over to chapter 3, which we're going to be looking at next week, it really literally talks about how do you build uh, up your church? Do you use, use gold, silver, precious stone, or is it wood and hay, stuff that's going to fall apart? And uh, so what she's got, at least as I look at it, is up at the top, you'll see the, the structure of a church. And uh, it's kind of funky, but that's all right. It looks good. But the problem is what? Not the church building but what's under it, right? I mean, the whole thing is ready to fall over. Now, I think she's captured perfectly the concern of the Apostle Paul as he writes this book. When you sort of put together some of the, some of the ideas and loose ends, in fact, you get over to chapter 7 of... Uh, of First Corinthians, and Paul says, now the things you wrote about. And apparently they'd sent him a laundry list of, of issues and problems that they had. You know, they were, they were worried about who they should marry and, and what, what kind of sex goes on in marriage. And they were worried about going to the marketplace and buying certain kinds of meat. And they were all excited about speaking in tongues, and they wondered if that was right. And... Uh, you know, what should women be wearing when they lead the worship services? And, and, and you go, go through this kind of laundry list of issues. But that's chapter 7. And in a way, I almost see what Paul is talking about is you guys are worried about what's going on in that house up there. But what you're not seeing is the whole thing's ready to fall apart. Because you're on the wrong foundation. So before we talk about those things that you're worried about, let me tell you what I'm worried about. And that's these first two chapters that we're looking at. And I want you to, I want you to kind of follow this with me because, folks, well, if, you, if you've been with us so far, and most of you, I'm sure, have been in and out, but you realize that... Uh, that the church at Corinth, which is this letter, is, is written to the church at Corinth. Corinth was, if I can put it this way, the hot city of Greece at the time of Paul. You hear about Athens and Sparta and so forth. That was another era. This is, this is the Greece of Roman days, and Corinth was the place to be. And so there was the urban flavor about Corinth. So we as an urban congregation need to sort of perk up and say, what? Well, what do we need to learn? What, what needs to go on? Because this was a church full of great people. 
gifted people, educated people, intellectual people, affluent people. But the whole thing could just fall over. If you don't get a hold, and and I think there are two basic truths that the apostle really hammers on in these first two chapters that I think we need to listen to. And so I want you to follow with me. First of all, you've got to start with the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what chapter 1 is all about. But then when we come to chapter 2, and this was the reading that you had this morning, what you also need to reckon with is the present power of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, the church is not kind of a nice collection of twigs and stones and people coming together. It's, it's a supernatural moving of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't get it, something's missing. So, okay, folks, we'll talk about some of those nuts and bolts and kind of things later on. As, as Paul does. But let's, let's kind of hone in together on these two things. Uh, this has been a, kind of an, a challenging and exciting study for me, and I'm, I just really want you to follow with me. I'm going to be preaching next week as well. And so um, you know, you, we haven't been together an awful lot, but uh, if you were with me on an ongoing basis as far as preaching, you know that a lot of what I try to do is sort of think out loud. And... Uh, Trying to think this through is something that's not, a, not new ideas, but it's a new way of thinking for me. And I really welcome you to kind of think about this feedback. Ah, oh, Steve, you don't have it quite right. And uh, I'll come back and give you some feedback next week. But, but folks, we are not going to have, going forward as a congregation, a solid, maturing church if we haven't got these two things at least the centrality of the gospel, and the ongoing living presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Okay, let me talk about those two things. The centrality of the gospel. Now, this is really what Duane preached on last week. I'm not going to add a whole lot. The best thing I can say is go listen to Duane's sermon. He did a fabulous job just talking about the extraordinary uniqueness and, and sort of a craziness of the gospel. I mean, who's really going to believe the idea that uh, salvation comes through this man coming to earth, dying on a cross, shedding his blood for our sins? Come on, give me a break. That just doesn't, that just doesn't fit. Well, Dwayne did a wonderful job. But look, look with me at the text and see how central this is. Verse 17, chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is what we've got to focus on. Chapter 2, at the very first two verses. And I, when I came to you, brothers, and he's using brothers, of course, in that generic sense, brethren, the old word. So it's not brothers in the male sense, but brothers and sisters. I come to you, my brethren, 
I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, I don't really feel like I'm putting out something terribly controversial uh, to say, you know, that the gospel of Jesus is where we have to start. It's just that it's here. We need to make sure that we get this, get this point. And let me also say to some of you, if, if I can use the word, who are beginners, and I don't know, I'm getting to know some of you, but, but I know that some of you are here, and I don't know you well, so I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. And so if you would call yourself a beginner... That is to say, you know, and I'm just sort of getting into this church thing, and I, I, I've never been much of a spiritual person. I've never been particularly religious, but here I am in church. Where do I start? Well, here's where you start. <laughs> this is the door, okay? Somewhere, if you're going to really get going in this thing of being a Christian, you've got to walk through the door of, what do I do with Jesus? Simple as that. Now, to say something simple doesn't mean it's easy. But that's, my friends, where it has to start. Think of it as a doorway. This is the way I, I picture it, of just simply stepping through the door. That's where it begins. People say sometimes, you know, there are many, many paths to God. We'll all get you to the same place. I'm sorry, that's not true. To say we all get to God in our own way is like saying God is infinite in the heavens and I'm going to jump up to God. And for some of you, like me, that's about two inches. <laughs> that's how I know my basketball days are over. My brain says, do this. My body says, uh-uh. Others of you can jump several feet toward God. But the fact is, none of us are getting there. The only way we get to God, friends, is if God himself chooses to come to us. Well, that's what he's done in Jesus. And so it's, it's not true that there are many paths to God. It is true that there are many paths to the door. What it, is, what it has taken to get you to stand at the door is, is, is as varied as there are people here in this in this room. And I don't know what your story is, but I want to tell you if you're gonna if you're gonna move any farther along the path, you've got to walk through the door, and that door is Jesus, revealed to you in the gospel. Okay? The interesting thing is once you go through the door, what you find out is that the way you walk after you've gone through the door is the same you went same way you went through the door, and that is through the gospel. There's a pastor up in uh, New York City that many of us admire named Tim Keller. Some of you perhaps have heard this phrase. He's got a wonderful church in New York. But, but Tim would say, you've got to understand the gospel is not the ABC of the Christian faith. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian faith. You've got to stay with the whole package. That's the gospel. Okay. 
But let's go on. Chapter 2 takes us into a whole discussion of the Holy Spirit. And I, I'm, I'm reading chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Then notice, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The gospel is wonderful. The gospel is true. But what makes the gospel work? It's the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Paul is saying. I didn't want to sort of show you how clever and great I was. I wanted to stand back just simply to tell you the basic story of Jesus so that the Holy Spirit could do his work. You see, the gospel, as wonderful as, as it is, has a problem. Nobody wants it. You, you always hear this expression, you know, if you'll only open your heart to Jesus, if you'll only believe. Well, that's true, but nobody wants to. What was it like for you? Now, when you go back over into chapter 1, Paul describes this in terms of the Jews and the Greeks. You know, if you open the Bible and, and kind of look at life from the, from the biblical point of view, it's essentially a Jewish book. And so if, if you read the Bible, everybody in the world is either a Jew or everyone else. They call them Gentiles. I suspect most of us here are Gentiles. Maybe a few of you have a Jewish background or heritage. But look at verse 22, chapter 1 and verse 22. For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks, which often is the word used for Gentiles, the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's the core gospel message. And what is it? A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So basically he's saying we preach the gospel, the Jews don't want it, and the Gentiles don't want it. Who's left? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. If that's where the verse ended. But of course it doesn't. Keep reading, if you will. But, verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's not a different message. It's not that Paul has somehow gussied it up and made it acceptable. What has happened is that people hearing the message of the gospel are pierced by the work of the Holy Spirit. They're called. That's the language that's used throughout Paul and his ministry. But to those who are called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
How does that work? Well, um, it's a great story that used to be told by, by Jack Miller. If you don't know that name, by the way, you should. We're here this morning, humanly speaking, because of the man Jack Miller. Jack was a pastor who lived up in Glenside, uh, started, a, uh, among many other things, a movement of churches called the New Life Churches. No doubt you've heard about them. The second generation of the New Life Churches. And some of you, I suspect, grew up hearing Jack preach. He's a unique and wonderful man. But the second generation, in my view, of the New Life movement, if you will, are what we call the Liberty Churches. So we're, we're here today thanks to his vision. But Jack used to tell this story. He said, let me tell you how the Holy Spirit works in terms of the gospel. Start with the picture of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. There's a, there's a text in Revelation where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. So Christ knocks at the door of our lives and he says, I want you. Come and follow me. And what do we say? Uh, no thanks. You know, I'm doing pretty well right now. And uh, Lord Jesus, if I get in a jam, maybe then we can talk. And we lock the door. The knock comes even louder. Come and follow me, Jesus says. Oh, I can't hear you, Lord. And we push the sofa in front of the, ca- in front of the door. The knock still comes. Christ calls us. And we say, give me a little time. Let me wait. But as Jack put it, what we don't know is that in the meantime, the Holy Spirit has kind of moved into our house down in the basement. And he's starting a fire. And even as the knocking on the door comes, and even as we're saying, no, no, no. In fact, this time we put the bed in front of the door. And then we put the tables and the chairs. Maybe I'll think about it, Lord. One of these days, I will become a believer. But the smoke is coming up into the house. And it's getting thicker and thicker. (laughs) But we say, no, no, not yet, not yet, not yet. I'll believe someday. Someday, maybe. And the knock gets louder and louder. And the smoke gets heavier and heavier and heavier until finally we can't stand it any longer. We push back the door. We, we push back the couch. We push back the bed. We push back the table and chairs. We unlock the door and we rush out into the arms of Jesus. And we say, I am so thankful that I accepted Jesus. All right? Now, your story, I know, is different than that. Some of you have all sorts of ways. And perhaps this is going on right now in your life. But one way or the other, as I said just a few minutes ago, we have to go through that door of coming to Jesus. But what I hope you appreciate, which, and maybe you haven't thought about it, why did you come to Jesus? Why did you believe in Jesus? Was it just luck? Did you just happen to stumble into 
this church or some other church? Did you just happen to meet Christians that told you about Christ? Did you just happen to mess up your life so much that you finally were willing to listen? Did you just happen to be born into a family that loved you and pointed you to Christ from the very day you were growing up? Was that all just sort of luck? Or was God at work in amazing ways that you and I don't appreciate? And that's, what, that's really what I'm trying to say to you now. Friends, it's not only that God loved you so much that he sent his son to go to the cross to pay for your sins. That's the gospel. It's wonderful. But God also loves you so much that he sent the Holy Spirit to move into your heart in his own secret and hidden way. And it's so easy to overlook that, to forget that, to be so focused on me. I've accepted Jesus. I've believed. And a whole dimension of what God is all about is missing in your consciousness. Working on this, I remembered back to sitting in a, in a classroom just not too many years ago, actually, here in Philadelphia. And I was talking about this very thing with a bunch of African-American pastors. Um, and they started laughing at me. <laughs> and I stopped, of course. You don't want to be laughed at. And, uh, and I said, what's wrong? And they, they said, Steve. He said, you know what? And these were people who were Pentecostals, uh, Baptists, various sorts of backgrounds. They said, you know what? We have heard about the Holy Spirit all our lives. But no one has ever talked to us about the Holy Spirit before conversion. And I said, you having a problem with that? And they said, no, it makes perfect sense. And as you kind of absorb that, it really changes the whole focus of your ministry because ultimately, friends, yes, it's the power of the gospel, but the power of the gospel is the moving of the Holy Spirit. And don't ignore or overlook that. By the way, one of the guys in that classroom was uh, Doug Logan, who many of you know was part of this congregation for a while. And Doug, if you were standing here, would say, yeah, that, that kind of thinking changed the whole way I do the way I do ministry. And I want to say it will change the way you look at church and the way you do ministry. And, and it's entirely possible. I want to ask this as a question because I really want you to wrestle with this. Because I want, to, I want you to be thinking in terms of your own personal journey, but also in terms of what we're doing as a church. That we focus on Jesus. And how can you focus too much on Jesus? You can't. But that you, but you somehow overlook the fact that, friends, this is happening because of the power and the moving and the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. And hold those two together. And we're ready to grow. We're ready to move forward. And I'm wondering if that wasn't the problem at Corinth, this is where I'm going to go next week into chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, infants in Christ. Now, he called them brothers. So, in other words, he says, I know you're believers. I know you, and I don't know what language you like to use. I know you've accepted Jesus. 
or gotten saved or whatever the terminology that, that kind of fits your, your pattern. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ, but you are not spiritual people. That is, you are unacquainted with the ways of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit has, in fact, done his work in you if you're a believer. But you don't, you don't reckon with that. You don't deal with that. And, and you know what? We're not ready to go anywhere spiritually until you get a hold of this. You're still babies, is the way he puts it. Well, I'm going to wait till next week and kind of dig into that with you a little bit, a little bit more. The rest of chapter 2, which is what we read this this morning, we're almost finished, and uh, I'm finally at the text. And there's so much really worthwhile that we could look into in these verses, but I just simply want to read through these verses. I want you to follow me, because this reinforces the importance of understanding the vitality and the work and the power of the Holy Spirit to kind of make the things of God work. So, so just watch, just follow in the text with me. I'm going to read and just make a few comments in these verses that were read to you earlier. Verse 6, chapter 2 and verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Now, the contrast, you see, is that all along he's been calling the message of the cross foolishness. And he wants to make sure that, hey, folks, you you understand what I'm saying, don't you? The message of the cross is not foolishness. The message of the cross is absolute profound wisdom. But don't expect the world to figure that out. They're not going to. And you can do all that you want to make the gospel acceptable, sound better, intellectually uh, intellectually, uh, uh, together. Trying to think of the word that I want. You know, the struggle that people have had all through this is we want to make the gospel relevant. Relevant to who? You're going to make the supernatural gospel of Jesus Christ acceptable to Bill Maher? Or John Stewart, or whatever cynic that you uh, watch on TV, you think there's going to come a point where they say, oh, you know what? I've been wrong. That all makes sense to me. Well, that'll happen. It has happened through history, but it's when God begins to break into their lives, not because they're intellectually uh, uh, catching up. If you want a good example of a guy that uh, that happened to, uh, his name is C.S. Lewis. Um, that's where Lewis was, sort of the, the Bill Maher. I don't mean to pick on Bill Maher. I just happened to be seeing him on TV the other day, sneering at anything to do with Christianity. And, um, but you know people like that at work, you know, around you. Don't wait, folks, for them to sort of catch up intellectually. And don't feel intimidated by these smug, arrogant People who think they know better. The gospel is ridiculous. You've got to understand it is not ridiculous. It's absolute amazing in terms of the meeting the human needs that we have all around us. But people aren't going to see that. And so Paul says, 
we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they'd really realized what was going on, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, which in fact they did. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the hearts or the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, for these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Okay? So it's the Holy Spirit who makes sense of the things of God. Paul makes that very clear. For who, just keep reading, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? Right? Nobody really knows you deep down. Somehow inside you know yourself, but other people can't see that. Well, he makes the same point. So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And we have received... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Don't, don't ignore this terribly important piece. And, verse 13, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. And I wonder, just to insert at this point, because there's, on the one hand, Paul is speaking about believers in general. But in another sense, Paul was a unique man set apart, as he says over in chapter 4, as an apostle who receives the stewards of the mysteries of God. And so it's not as though any of us can constantly always speak with perfect Wisdom, uh, the words of the Holy Spirit. But what Paul says, we impart these to you in words. And thankfully, these words have been written down. And so the good news is, even though we don't have Paul speaking to us directly, we do have what Paul has written down. And so, my friends, you and I can, in fact, open this book and gain God's perspective. See life as the Spirit would have us see life. And I encourage you, to, to appreciate and, and value how much God has given us in this scripture. But then the last phrase of verse 13, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Uh, and this is not just spiritual in some generic sense. In the context of this, it's really those who appreciate the work of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the word spiritual in this sense. And that's the problem with the Corinthian church. And I challenge us all to say, is that our problem? Now, we, in a sense, we've got the gospel, the centrality of Jesus. But we're still what Paul calls infants. We're not ready to really talk about spiritual things. And in that sense, we're not ready to grow. We're on a very, very shaky foundation. The truth of the gospel, but also the reality and power of the Holy Spirit. 
So that was part of your own Christian life. Because it's got to be if we're going to build that underneath a strong and growing church that we want to see our uh, liberty become. Did I hear an amen? Wow. Do Presbyterians do that? Actually say amen. Thank you. Because that is what we want, I trust. A growing church and a strong church. Not one that's ready to fall over. It looks pretty, but there's nothing underneath. There's nothing to it. May God help us. And this is why I love to to wrap things up every week with this communion that we're going to go to now. You really are testifying. Yes, you're right. Not just in a theoretical sense, but for me personally, I want to stand up with the rest of my brothers and sisters. And I want to say, I believe absolutely that this church cannot grow apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I embrace that. I take this bread and this wine. They're symbolic. But they are powerful symbols of the gospel. Jesus Christ crucified for us, his blood shed for our sins. But I do so in the communion of the Holy Spirit. Because in fact, there is no other foundation than can be laid than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. I'm quoting from chapter 3, where we go next. But then in that same chapter, Paul says, don't you know, don't you know, my friends, building on this foundation of Jesus, that you are the temple of God. He's talking to the church there. He's talking to liberty. You are the temple of God, the place where God dwells by the Holy Spirit. That's verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Will you affirm that as we come now to this communion meal? Let us pray.